Hello, it's Wednesday 9th of March. I'm Hannah Pearson. Welcome to part six of our two years of travel disruption series as Gary Bowerman and I assess the current up-to-date reopening landscape two years after the region's borders began to close. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello wherever you are in the world and thanks for listening in. So it's almost exactly two years since Southeast Asian nations started to shut their borders as COVID-19 or the first variant as it was called back then began to spread across the region and then beyond. So for part six of our two years of travel disruption series, we're going to travel around the region to check out the current state of travel and tourism. It's still patchy and it's still bureaucratic uh, and travelers are facing troubling administration burdens to arrive and to depart. But there is a smoothening of the harsher edges in most countries right now. So Hannah, just before we begin going around uh, the region, I thought we'd include some comments by two guests of the show to kind of set the scene for today's podcast. Firstly, uh, comments by Dan Lin, who's the co-founder of Singapore-based Zuzu Hospitality, who we interviewed on the show last November. Dan said on Monday, The dominoes are falling. Travel is quickly reopening across Southeast Asia. This is great, but other than Cambodia, the temptation in Southeast Asia is always to overcomplicate the approach, whether it's pre-arrivals, PCR tests over ART, multiple tests after arrivals, the rollouts are never simple. Each country seems to feel the need to relearn this, gradually dropping these requirements one by one. So true. I think, Gary, we've talked about this so much. I would I would just add on, other than Cambodia and Philippines, Philippines is pretty easy to get in. Um, and another comment um, by Simon Westaway, another previous guest of ours, who's the strategy director at Royce Communications in Melbourne and former executive director of the Australian Travel Industry Council. And he's been on the show twice. And he said, what is needed now is a genuine effort to deliver and effectively communicate seamless border arrangements across and beyond countries across our region and an ongoing public health commitment by all countries in our region to the power and retention of continued high vaccination levels. Yep, impossible to argue with that as well, isn't it? So I thought we'd drop those two comments in as they're worth keeping in mind as touchstones as we tour around Southeast Asia on today's show. But let's dive in, Hannah. Let's start firstly here in Malaysia and hooray, finally. Finally. Right. I feel like I have been saying every week, it's got to be this week, right? It's got to be this week they make an announcement. And we've had announcements of announcements of announcements. And finally, uh, yesterday, so the 8th of March, uh, the Prime Minister has announced that Malaysia will fully reopen on the 1st of April. And the requirements are not too hefty. It's the kind of the standard RT-PCR test before departure. I mean, that's that's pretty standard across the region. Um, and an antigen test on arrival. So that's, that's a little bit more relaxed, actually, than it could have been. That surprised me. I thought perhaps they would go for an RT-PCR test on arrival, too. But no quarantine. The, the only strange thing about this is that it comes just after last week's announcement about uh, vaccinated travel lanes with Cambodia and Thailand, right, Gary? Yeah, which which is mystifying. I mean, the, the Prime Minister said yesterday, he, he tried to quant- qualify this, I think. He said that there will be vaccinated travel lanes with countries that do not currently have their borders open. So he therefore referenced Brunei, which is an important market in and out for, for Malaysia, and Singapore as well, which is still running through, for now, the vaccinated travel lane programme. 
But Cambodia and Thailand, that seems to make absolutely no sense. I'm really not sure about that. As you said, there's, uh, it looks as though the full border reopening is going to be exactly that. Although they did caveat that, didn't they? They said that there is still going to be some SOPs, some standard operating procedures, which will be announced in the coming weeks. You know, that kind of thing just sends shivers through the travel industry because, you know, what, is, what are we, we going to find out? But it, it looks like there's no going back. And I think the interesting point about this is it's from the 1st of April. I think we've said on the show, Hannah, it would be economically very difficult for Malaysia to go into the second quarter of the year looking to increase its economy, to, to build the economy throughout the year and to go into that second quarter without its borders reopened. It just wouldn't make any sense, not just in terms of travel and tourism, but in terms of investment flows and business deals that need to get done. So fingers crossed, this all goes to plan, but uh, it, it does look quite good. I mean, I must, feel, I must say I feel a little more optimistic than I have for quite a while here in Malaysia. Yeah, I was definitely singing to myself after the after the news. <laughs> We've been waiting for this moment for so long. But like you say, you know, I was talking to uh, Faiz Fadila, who's also been on the podcast before, and he's Secretary General of Mata, and he was saying, "Well, we just got to wait for the the SOPs. What, what are going to be in there?" And you know, we we have seen this before when they communicated the Langkawi International um, Tourism Bubble, and they announced it, and they they were very very late with the SOPs. So fingers crossed that they have learned the lesson from that and that they will roll those out very soon to tourism stakeholders so that they can start to promote Malaysia and, and get themselves ready for a reopening. Yeah, I mean, we won't labor the point too much, Hannah, but I mean, what, what could those SOPs be? I mean, they've basically said what the entry requirements will be. I guess the, the concern is that it's about booking requirements and, and having to book through local operators. Do you think that that's what, what they're going to announce? I mean, it could be. I mean, that's how the Langkawi International Tourism Bubble works, isn't it? You have to book via uh, an authorised agent. I would think it would be a bit difficult to do that, you know, on a kind of nationwide basis. I mean, that might be another thing. Are they still going to limit uh, the entry points to Malaysia or are you going to be able to fly in from wherever? That, of course, is very important for Malaysia because we have East Malaysia and West Malaysia. So is this also going to positively impact Eastern Malaysia, you know, Sabah and Sarawak are desperate um, to be able to welcome tourists. And they've been really calling for this vaccinated travel lane with Singapore to be extended uh, to Kota Kinabalu, to be extended to Kuching. I mean, it's now been extended to Penang as well as KL. So it will be interesting to see whether they limit arrivals. Are they going to limit you have to arrive on a a direct flight? Are they going to allow uh, transit? Lots of questions. But overall, very good news. Yeah, absolutely. So let's move uh, across to Indonesia, Hannah. Some more good news there from Bali in terms of its reopening. Yeah, finally, um, Bali must be saying that as well. I mean, you know, we have had so many, I guess, false starts for reopening and so many announcements about a reopening, but it really seems like now it has reopened. You know, it reopened on the 7th of March. It was quite a quick thing. They They announced it right at the end of last week and said that we will be removing the quarantine requirements for fully vaccinated um, travellers. And they'll be also implementing the visa on arrival uh, for a certain number of countries as well. Um, so suddenly they removed some of those blockers because even though Bali was technically open, one of the blockers was this visa situation and it was very hard. And you had to apply via a sponsor or via a tourism company and, and things were very, very messy. So by reinstating this visa on arrival scheme, that's effectively removed one of the 
the major blockers, plus, of course, removing the quarantine. So we've seen, I think, the past couple of days, there's been a few trickles of tourists. There's been the usual press around, uh, you know, seven or eight or however many tourists that was arriving into Bali. But finally, uh, Bali tourism stakeholders must be breathing a huge sigh of relief, right? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And the interesting thing is that, you know, Bali is being used again as, as the kind of testing ground, isn't it? It's This is where this is going to be happening right now. How quickly will they roll this out to other destinations? You know, you imagine other destinations in Indonesia, given the fact that the region is opening up, they want to be part of this. They don't want all the business just to go to Bali. They, you know, there are businesses there that are desperate for tourists to come back. So you know, Indonesia focusing just on Bali is, again, goes back to those two points that we mentioned at the beginning of the show. Um, it's very incremental still. It's still point by point. It's still rolling out reopenings to, to parts of a country open the borders that's what i would say what do you think Hannah? <laughs> i think i think the listeners know where we stand on, on reopening <laughs> borders <laughs> um so we'll hop back across uh to the malaya peninsula and go to singapore um and so singapore they are still in the throes of very high cases and they have actually delayed you know they, they were going to ease some of their kind of internal safety measures and that's actually been uh, delayed but last week, they actually announced that they are going to expand the VTLs. Excitingly for ASEAN, two more destinations within ASEAN. So they've added Vietnam. And that was funny because I was just saying to somebody a couple of days before, surely they're going to add Vietnam soon to Bali. Um, Philippines is there. That was, a, that was a, a couple of weeks before they'd made that announcement. They were going to open to the Philippines, Phuket. So we are seeing more of an ASEAN reopening. In fact, the only Southeast Asian countries now who are not benefiting from VTLs with Singapore uh, is Myanmar. Uh, I mean, that makes sense. And Laos. Uh, the Laos one is kind of a strange one why they haven't, given you know, the COVID situation is very much under control in Laos. Perhaps that's more to do with volumes of, of travel, but it's looking very promising for ASEAN travel. Um, they have expanded it to all cities um, in India. Again, that's going to be fantastic for, um, for Singapore travelers. And for, for Singapore tourism as well, the inbound tourism. Um, and the other interesting one is what they have done with Europe. So now they added uh, Greece as a VTL destination. So in theory, all countries which have, uh, I think that this is true. You correct me, Gary, if I'm wrong. Um, I think now all countries which have a direct flight from Europe to Singapore now have VTLs. And so they have expanded the kind of caveat for Europe. And so you can travel anywhere within Europe and still travel on these VTLs. So essentially opening up all of Europe for Singaporean outbound travel, which is fantastic for outbound travelers um, from Singapore. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. The timing couldn't be better, could it, for, particularly for booking for the, the summer holidays. You know, all other things, will come to this later, but all other things uh, that are happening in Europe right now, excepted the fact that the markets are open across Asia, across Europe, and, and Singaporeans will be able to travel to them is great news. I think there are two elements that you, that you mentioned there that I think we picked up on that we've, we've discussed more over the past few months is, is this VTL scheme is very flexible and it has been sort of scaled up. So you mentioned there that it's now available to more Indian cities and more Thai cities. It's not just point to point between capital cities. That's really, really important. We need that scaled up here in Malaysia. That, that's, that's really vital, I think. And the other element also is the fact that it's now, there are so many countries now involved in this VTL scheme, that VTL is almost expanding itself out of existence, I think. It's almost coming to the point where what, what is the need for having this anymore? 
I know that a lot of this is to control numbers coming through Changi Airport, but we're moving towards a situation in Singapore where I think it's almost on the cusp of, of opening its borders. And I think, as you said there, Hannah, if, if the numbers weren't so high in the city itself, uh, it probably would be moving towards that. And I don't think that, that Singapore is misunderstanding the fact of, of inbound travel and domestic transmission of the disease. I just think it's almost a, a political play that it's quite difficult to open your borders. We're coming to Vietnam in a moment. When numbers are so high domestically, it's just a domestic play on, on that. But it does look very much as though the VTL scheme, I think, is not long for existence. It's almost becoming so open that it doesn't need to exist anymore. What do you think? It could be. I mean, in what I haven't seen, um, and I don't know if you've come across it, Gary, before when they have um, expanded all of these VTLs, they have really talked about the cap on arrivals at Changi Airport. But what I haven't seen in the past couple of weeks, actually, is that quota. What is that number? So whether, again, like you say, that's kind of an indicator, perhaps there really isn't a number now um, and they're just adding on these these vtls and expanding them without necessarily having this cap yeah have you seen a cap anywhere i haven't and it's a good point i think as you as you mentioned there you know because it's expanded to so many different not just countries but also cities as well so there's so many points in and out of singapore now and we're probably expecting singaporeans are going to be traveling outbound in, in bigger numbers over the coming months yeah managing those caps is going to be difficult anyway so yeah, let's hope by the summer that VTL is gone. That, that's my hope. Yes. So I'll move on to another country, which also had a, a big moment in February, which is, of course, uh, the Philippines. So the Philippines reopened, reopened on the 10th of February, and it's had a pretty strong um, arrivals, really, considering that it was a pretty last minute announcement. There has not been that much press um, surrounding it, really. Not like when Thailand opened and there was so much press in you know, the Western media and media um, in Southeast Asia. So between 10 to 28th of February, they saw almost 48,000 international visitors. Now, the kind of caveat on that is 45% of these are what they call the Balik Bayans, uh, who are kind of the returning uh, Filipinos. So they no longer have a Philippine uh, passport um, because perhaps they've had to give it up for citizenship for other countries, but they still have a very, very strong link. Um, to the Philippines. And 55% were foreign tourists. Now, again, I mean, this foreign tourist could also be a lot of the VFR segment, right? It could well be foreign spouses, foreign children of these ballot buy-ins coming back with them. There's not really that, that split, but it's encouraging. Um, so top markets, they've had people from the US, Canada, UK, South Korea, Australia, Vietnam, um, and Germany. Um, so it, it seems to be going strong and they seem to be removing some domestic travel requirements as well. Yeah, absolutely. Nothing more to add to that. Let's let's move to Vietnam, Hannah, because there's a big debate going on in Vietnam. Uh, the country is scheduled to, to reopen its borders next week on the 15th of March, but there are still no unified procedures here. And this is, you know, this is a reflective theme, uh, as we mentioned at the top of the show, that we've been seeing over recent months where countries announce that they, they are or they might reopen. But then they don't actually put in place the absolute procedures to make it easier for travelers to, to make bookings and to make it easier for the, the industry um, to facilitate inbound and outbound travel. Uh, now, I saw a headline. I think this is probably my favorite headline of the last week, not necessarily because of the, the content, but because of the creative use of language. 
And VN Express said last week that Viet- Vietnam travel firms fret over demotivating entry restrictions. I don't think we've used that word demotivating, but it's a really good one. <laughs> it is. It really highlights the, the, the situation as it currently stands. There, there seems to be, as you've mentioned, Hannah, off air just now, that there's this kind of debate between the health ministry and the tourism ministries, different parts of government, as we know, uh, these reopening um, policies, there's just input from so many different governmental departments right now, right up to the, to the PM's department in, in most countries. You have to give and take. Different ministries want different things. And different ministries are also looking for certain SOPs that they want to put in place. But the one that this is particularly mystifying, I think, in Vietnam right now, given the fact of domestic transmission. I, I looked at the latest figures from yesterday, Hannah. Um, Vietnam recorded 147,000 new cases yesterday, and it currently has, this is, this is quite eye-watering, 1.82 million active cases. So inbound and outbound travel is really going to have a very, very minimal impact on, on the transmission of the disease. But something else must be at play, I guess. Yeah, I think so. You know, like, like you were saying, I love that demotivating. That's a bit like I was saying last week, <laughs> underwhelming. <laughs> so, all of these subtle ways of saying not great. Yeah, it's, it's that age-old health ministry, tourism ministry. Everyone wants different things. Um, I was talking to uh, the Vietnamese tour operator that I represent. And, um, he was saying yesterday, you know, like, we, we want to start selling. We want to start promoting. Um, but we are still waiting for these, for the entry requirements. We're still waiting. We, we can't communicate with our customers. Our customers want to book, but we can't do anything because we are just held by waiting for these requirements. Um, so like, like you said, it is this, this thing we have commonly seen across it. They announce it and then they scramble to put together the entry requirements. But oh, six days out and they've still not done it. Yeah, it, it must be particularly bewildering. I think for Vietnam's tourism industry, perhaps alone in our region, because it keeps topping, you know, these travel sentiment services around the world uh, as a high profile destination, you know, where a lot of people around the world want to want to travel to. Again, that does depend on, on how airlines are able to rebuild flight frequencies and capacities and things like that. But, you know, it does seem to be quite a high profile destination. But And the industry knows this, but it's simply, as you said, not able to sell because the visa policy and entry requirements are not yet clearly stated. Uh, and as you said, six days out, you know, that's just bewildering. After two years, you would have thought that we would have learned by now to get those processes in place. So on to Thailand then. There's uh, always news for Thailand. Of course, in the beginning of February, the test and go um, applications reopened. But they had this having to test on the first day and having to test on the fifth day, uh, RT-PCR requirement, and you had to stay in a hotel for both of those nights, but not necessarily in between those nights. Um, So it was a bit of a funny arrangement. Um, Obviously, it impacted not only inbound tourists, but also kind of returning Thai tourists, you know, who'd been doing outbound trips because they would be able to stay, they'd have to stay in a hotel the first night, could go home, (laughs) stay at home for two, three nights and have to check back into a hotel again to go back home. Um, So obviously, the trade were really lobbying um, to remove this fifth day um, test requirement. And finally, uh, the government kind of saw the light and did that. Now, I mean, the tourism trade in Thailand have also just been really campaigning. Uh, They're really ramping up the rhetoric to remove test and go requirements altogether, to remove the Thailand pass, which is the the system that you have to apply for for entry. I mean, this test and go must be let go, which does make me think a lot of frozen let it go. But I think that's just being the mum of a toddler. Um, But, you know, it's, it's getting there, but it is slow to let these go. I mean, they have they have talked about how soon they are going to to lessen some of the entry requirements. They have not really said what that actually means in practice. 
Um, but a small, a small positive step, I think, at least that they have removed this fifth day testing requirement. Yeah, and, and almost even when it doesn't try, Thailand can't keep itself out of the headlines, can it? At the moment, it's a high profile media case because of the number of Russian tourists that are in uh, Thailand. I think, as you said, Hannah, it's almost a, a fifth of, of travelers in, in Thailand at the moment are from Russia. Obviously, it's prime season for Russian tourists, January, February, March, because of the cold weather back home. Uh, but we all know what's happening. We know the sanctions that have been put in place, the financial restrictions on payment cards that they're using. There's talk in, in Thailand at the moment of allowing cryptocurrency payments or, or payments through Chinese-issued bank cards. Uh, it's a workaround, but you know how, how sustainable that is in the long term. We don't know. But, you know, I guess one of the questions I get asked the most by media at the moment is two. And one, what is going to be the impact of oil prices? And the other one is, how do we get around the fact that the Chinese market is not here and the Russian market may also disappear? You know, those are two big impacts for our region and particularly for Thailand, where it hits so hard. Yeah, I mean, and one answer to that could now be India. Right. So they have now announced that from the 27th of March, they're going to be reopening commercial flights. Ah. Countries in Southeast Asia are going to start looking very seriously at India instead as, as an alternative market. What do you think? S Singapore already has. I mean, Singapore's had a very, very sophisticated marketing campaign into second tier cities in uh, India, not just the, the metro cities for, for several years. And they've done very, very well about that uh, before the pandemic. But yeah, other countries are going to have to ramp up that. But, you know, the interesting thing about that is opening the flights is, as we know, and it's only the first part. You've, you've got to find ways to encourage travelers to come. You've got to know when they travel. Uh, what, what are they going to be particular requirements? You know, and, and Indian um, tourists before the pandemic were increasing in places like Thailand, particularly Bali as well. So, you know, there is opportunities there from the Indian market. But, you know, that Chinese market is so big. I guess tourism boards are going to have to really, really close their minds to benchmarking against 2019 and just try to rebuild growth. They've got to definitely look at the ASEAN markets. I think you're right. India is certainly going to be in the mix uh, over the coming months. Taiwan looks like it may reopen. So you're probably going to be looking at Japan, Korea and Taiwan as well. Um, but, you know, th there's going to be a shortfall. I think that's almost inevitable. And the Tourism Authority of Thailand is now saying it's going to go on the road. Uh, it's going to take its road shows to Sydney, to Saudi Arabia and to Israel to try and drum up support in those markets. I guess that makes absolute sense. But, you know, it's not going to have an immediate impact. Bringing in more tourists from the Middle East, from Israel and from Australia, it can happen. Um, but it's going to take a bit of time. Yeah, absolutely. Like you say, it's, it's all about the build up. So that's kind of the roundup about what's going on um, in terms of international reopenings. Of course, Cambodia is still open, as, uh, as Nick Ray <laughs> who's one of our previous interviewees, um, loves to point out Cambodia is open and, and ready and one of the least uh, cumbersome requirements to get in. Laos, of course, has still got its, um, its green pass uh, scheme as well. It's fairly limited who can get in. Um, but let's move on to domestic travel and just have a really quick whiz through what is happening there, if anything. So should we start off in Cambodia, Gary? Yeah, I mean, as you you said there, you know, domestic tourism is still going to be very, very important this year. I think for a number of reasons. One of those is that we're still uncertain about international demand for travel and the ability to travel, particularly in terms of our region. People have lost jobs, you know, businesses have closed. There's the financial aspect. Also, we don't really know longer term what's going to happen with long haul traffic, particularly if you've got to fly across Europe over the coming months, will that dampen demand? So domestic tourism is going to be very, very important. I think we really need to still be able to, to find ways to give domestic travelers new experiences uh, and exciting, aspirational 
ways to explore their own country, even though the borders are back open again. Whether that will happen, I'm not sure. But the figures are looking quite strong in Cambodia, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, they're one of the few countries where they actually report their weekend tourists nearly on a, on a weekly basis. But they, re- they report it every weekend, basically, their domestic tourists. And it tends to stay around 100,000. Um, it, it's not significantly going down now. Um, so certainly there's really strong weekend domestic trips now of course we know and this is one of the the downsides of the domestic market is that you know you need that international market to fill in the off-peak times you you need the international market to fill in the weekdays Um, but at least you know it means that tourism stakeholders are getting something on the weekends to keep them going looking at the philippines airlines particularly air asia philippines have been putting out a lot of press about how they have very high load factors about how they are adding on new routes, new flights, and certainly a lot of the, the LGUs, the local governmental units, are removing uh, these kind of testing restrictions for fully vaccinated individuals in the Philippines. I think also as a play to be able to attract um, international tourists when they come to visit the country too. But that, that seems to be working. Boracay seems to have uh, its arrival numbers for domestic kind of picking up too. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, in Thailand, we look at uh, what's happening there. I was speaking to a Thai general manager of a hotel uh, in Phuket last week, Uh, not one of the major international hotels, but a mid-range resort hotel. And he was saying that the Tor Tiao Thai program had really kept him in business over recent months. It enabled Thais to to spend a lot more time at his hotel because it's not premium price, but it's not cheap either. But he said the impact of that is quite interesting in terms of how he's had to reprice, um, not just the rooms, but some of the other services in terms of the, the food requirements and that kind of thing. He was talking about Pad Thai. Is that to drop the price of Pad Thai? Thai tourists wouldn't pay um, the prices that were previously in the hotel. They could just go down the street and, and get it. So it has had some impact. We've got Songkran coming up, Hannah. That's uh, an, in, an interesting element because Thailand says it wants to go ahead with Songkran. Um, but obviously the, the numbers are rising there and Songkran is seen perhaps as a super spreader. I mean, what do you think will happen there? Yeah, I mean, the past couple of years, Songkran has obviously been really um, a non-event. This is the first time that it could really properly go ahead. I mean, I think there's still question marks about whether they will be able to have the usual water fights and things. But it will be very, I think it will really be a bellwether for Thai sentiment, whether travellers actually get on the road, get in the planes and travel over that time. Because like you said, um, you know, current estimates from the health ministry they're saying worst case scenarios, cases could hit 100,000. Um, I mean, that's that's their worst case. They are, they are nowhere near that uh, right now. But we have seen before that these kind of outbreaks do make Thai people nervous. They are quite a nervous uh, market compared to, say, Indonesia, where they, they will travel um, regardless. Um, so it will be very interesting to see come April whether travellers do go domestic or they stay home, particularly if cases are quite high. Uh, moving on to Vietnam, there was pretty high travel demand over Tet, um, the, the Lunar New Year holiday. If you, you saw pictures in the media of some of the beaches were incredibly packed. Uh, some of the, the mountain retreats as well, there was a lot of traffic on the roads. People were self taking self-driving trips. So that's great news. Here in Malaysia too, there's been quite a, a lot of domestic travel. I, I flew recently from Kuala Lumpur to Sabah to Kota Kinabalu. And it was the first time I'd been to Kuala Lumpur International Airport for two years. Still pretty quiet, I have to say. But the the domestic terminal was, I would say, a little bit busier than I perhaps expected. The international uh, area was very, very quiet. Um, But the two flights that I took, it's a two and a half hour flight between KL and Sabah. 
both flights were at, I would say, at most half full, probably less than that. Now, that's going to be quite difficult to sustain going forward if oil prices and jet fuel prices increase. If you're only having, uh, you know, that much yield from a flight, uh, it's it's going to be very difficult to maintain the, the regularity of services. But there were plenty of tourists in Sabah, uh, local tourists, of course. There were virtually no international tourists. Um, but, you know, there's, there's everybody you talk to, and I spoke to a lot of people in Sabah, everybody has got this fear and this hope in almost equal amounts. They really want travelers to come back. But there is still fear there. As you mentioned, some markets are more fearful than others. And I really got that, that feeling when I was in Sabah. Great people. The, the service is fantastic. But yeah, there is that residual worry that you know, maybe uh, we'll see numbers rise again and those flights from the Kuala Lumpur will be, would be shuttered again. And everything goes back to, to square one. So, yeah, we're certainly not out of the woods, are we, by, by any means? No, definitely not. And maybe we'll just round it off with an update about an airline. I mean, obviously, there's, there's lots going on with different airlines. But this is a more positive one about Singapore Airlines, who have finally posted their first profit um, since the pandemic, haven't they, Gary? Yeah, they have. They reported a net profit of 85 million Singapore dollars in the third quarter of last year. That's when we saw travel volumes between October and December start to increase before, obviously, the, the VTR shutdown came just before Christmas. Um, so there, were, there was, you know, there was more inbound, outbound travel. That is a positive outcome. We know that Singapore Airlines did restructure. It did slim down. It is much more lean than it was before. Um, but it does look as though it's raised a lot of money <clears throat> that it's looking to uh, to ex- accelerate its expansion as these VTLs hopefully um, move out of existence and we have a much more uh, liberal opening into Singapore. Uh, you would hope that Singapore Airlines is, is poised and ready to, to take advantage. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they are saying that they aim to serve over 70% of their total pre-pandemic destinations by the end of the financial year. So they're kind of getting there. They expect to reach passenger capacity 51% by March. So yeah, there's a long, long way to go to get back to where it was for Singapore Airlines. But it's nice to read positive headlines for once. I think that that 70% figure for many destinations, tourism marketers, airline marketers, you know, everybody would be happy to achieve that this year if that's at all possible. Exactly. So that brings us to the end of part six of our eight part two years of travel disruption series. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out. Drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yeah, meanwhile, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, seasiatravelshow.com. And of course, you can listen to every episode, including this one, on all the various international podcast platforms. Again, just search for the Southeast Asia Travel Show on each one. And if you tune in via Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please give us a quick rating and review, as that helps other people to find the show. And just before we go, Hannah, we've started to develop some podcast playlists, haven't we? And you did the first one yesterday. Yeah, exactly. So we've, you know, it was International Women's Day yesterday. So I thought it'd be kind of cool to uh, pull together a a playlist of all of our female interviewees. And we've had quite a few uh, really fantastic listens, everyone from Karen Yue to Gary Newsom to Melina Caruso in Bali. Um, So super interesting uh, female leaders. um, Go check that out. We've posted that on our LinkedIn page. And we'll be doing some more soon. It's on, on Spotify. So that's a wrap for today. And we'll both return next week with a special guest for part seven of two years of travel disruption. We look forward to seeing you then. 